This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability... The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Monty Lyman, author of the new book, The Painful Truth. He tells me all about what pain really is, how the placebo effect works, and why our emotions have a huge effect on the pain we feel. So first of all, could you please just explain what your book is about? Sure. It's um, about pain um, and it's about pain in general, but it has a, more of a focus on, on chronic pain, on also known as persistent pain, because I believe that's something we, we really don't understand very well, yet it affects so many, so many people. So just understanding what, what pain is and the science behind it, um, looking at why sometimes pain persists, even once a, a tissue injury is healed. And, and how we can deal with that on the individual level and as a society. If you'd asked me before I'd read your book to define pain, I probably would have said something like, it's a sore, unpleasant feeling that you get when you've injured yourself. But now that I've read your book, I know that's not quite right. So what is pain if it's not just a reaction to an injury? Um, I mean, you've, you've hit on the, uh, the, the million dollar question. You know, we, we all know pain when we feel it, but sort of defining it, has been really tricky, and a lot of scientists and clinicians have been in um, log- uh, been at loggerheads and in arguments at international conferences for years and years and years um, as to what pain is. But um, at its heart, it's very simple. So I'll, I'll tell you the official uh, definition of pain, um, which was um, is by the sort of the International Association of the Study of Pain, which was uh, updated um, uh, last year which is that pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So that sounds quite dry. My definition of pain is 
It's a horrible feeling that urges us to protect a body part. And it's really interesting that it's very close to what, what you said at the beginning. But I think the key thing about pain is that actually most of us, and, and I'm including a lot of doctors and the, and, the, and the medical profession, misunderstand pain. And I call this the, the painful untruth, which is that pain is an accurate detector of tissue injury. Actually, the painful truth, which is the, the one of the main takeaways, probably the main takeaway from my book, is that pain is a protector. So it's a, it's a protective mechanism, not an accurate detector of tissue injury. And now you might say, you know, well, you know, if I slam my laptop on my, on my thumb, it hurts. And then if I, if I slam it in a car door, it hurts even more. Surely that, you know, there's a relationship between injury and pain. And of course, of course it is. But that's fundamentally not what it is. And it's, uh, and in many cases, the brain essentially learns pain. Pain can um, essentially become etched on the brain. So for most people living with uh, chronic, otherwise known as persistent pain, whatever injury that happened at the beginning has completely healed, but the brain has completely remembered pain. And I didn't plan to write a book on pain. I think it, it came to me when I realized the huge issue, uh, the huge problem that we have with uh, pain as a, as a society. And it all comes down to this misunderstanding. I, I first realized this in my first year as a junior doctor, and I was on, a, on an acute medical ward, chasing after my consultant, scribbling notes um, that, that, are, that, that would sort of record what he said when he would see all the new patients that day. So we'd decide whether the patient who'd come in from A&E would go to a, a ward and stay overnight, or whether they'd be discharged home. And at the end of a long day, uh, we came to Paul, it's not his real name, he was a, an IT worker in his 40s. And he'd had lower back pain for about a year. It started, he said it was due to a sort of conked out office chair. And then over the months, it began to sort of spread across to both sides of his lower back, become more persistent and uh, more intense. Um, so he stopped playing golf and then he stopped seeing his friends. And then he basically never left the house. Alongside that, he'd um, had uh, gone through divorce proceedings with his wife as well. And there were lots of other stresses in his life. But on that morning, on that day, he was in so much pain, lower back pain, that he couldn't get out of bed. And he got his son to take him to A&E. He had blood tests and an MRI scan, all of which were normal. So I went, I went um, to his bedside and the consultant looked through the, uh, the notes and said, said, I said to Paul, the good news is there's nothing physically wrong with you. To which Paul said, still clutching his lower back, are you saying it's all in my head? And so Paul was sent home with some painkillers, but he left not knowing what his pain was, you know, was was there was it caused by some kind of tissue injury that no one could detect with scans or blood tests or anything, or was it sort of all in his head? Was it a sort of um, you know a thought disorder that he can just think away? Was he imagining it? And I, I realised that both of those two things are wrong. Pain is not simply a, me a, a measure of tissue injury, but it's not you know a figment of your imagination and it's not a thought disorder. And that is what the the, the, the modern science of pain is revealing. Um, and I think understanding that pain is a protective mechanism it is your brain's unconscious opinion of whether your body is in danger. I think understanding that is key. And it also helps to break down this divide that we have in, in Western medicine, that something is either physical, it's in your body, or it's mental. But actually, things can be in your brain and affecting your mind and body, and, and they can be completely real. And I think understanding that, we've got a long way to go to, to understanding that. But understanding that, I believe, is the key to healing as well in terms of chronic pain.
So when you talk about um, the idea of pain being all in your head or, you know, not caused by a physical injury, the, the word that comes to mind for me is psychosomatic. Is that right? Is that the word that describes it? Yes, uh, I think I think definitely that's one, one way of putting it. I think just understanding that, yeah, that the mind and body are hugely, uh, hugely interlinked. And it's, it's a false dichotomy saying that, you know, something's either in your mind, or in this case, it's in your mind or it's in your, in, in your body. What could cause psychosomatic pain? Well, yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I think essentially short term pain uh, is is protective. All, all pain tries to protect us, but say say you you stub your toe, you get a message, electrical signals that go up from from the receptors on the skin of your toe to your spinal cord. They then travel across a microscopic space called a synapse to the next nerve, and then that goes up the spine and then into, into the brain. But those aren't pain signals. There's no such thing as a pain signal or a pain receptor. They are danger signals and danger receptors. The, 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 the sort of medical word for that is nociception, nociceptors. So that signal travels up to the brain and the brain has to decide, is this a threat to me? And if it thinks it's, if, if the brain thinks that there's something um, happening in, uh, in the foot and thinks that it's dangerous, it will create, it will create pain. And now this sort of uh, psychosomatic pain in a sense, which I think I think yes, yeah, definitely one way of, one way of putting it. But I'd, I like to think that chronic pain or persistent pain is the same thing. Pain that persists longer than the period of tissue injury. So that's usually for three months, but it can vary. But basically, sometimes pain can become wired on the brain. So the brain and the brain learns to create pain. So if you have some uh, say pain in your lower back, say would you look at lower back pain, and you have a twinge in one of your back muscles. You might think, do I have a, a slip disc? Is my spine damaged? And the brain wants to protect you. So it really wants to protect your spine. And now even when that sort of that, that muscle injury heals and heals completely, the persistent danger signals going to the brain combined with the fear of, of damage to yourself, um, combined with lots of other things, including inflammation, that's which is a really, really interesting area as well. Essentially, they can make the signals across those little synapses, synapses, those little um, gaps between the nerves, can essentially amplify the pain. Two ways we see it, we see this are in hyperalgesia, which is where something that causes pain causes even more pain. So for example, you know, if you stub your toe going into a, into a house, it's a bit painful. And then a few minutes later, if you stub your toe on the same object leaving the, leaving the house, even though there's, there's the same amount of force, the pain will be more because there's the pain has been sort of the, the the threshold for pain has increased, and then there's something called allodynia, which is feeling pain in sensations where you don't usually feel pain. A classic example could be sunburn, where you know being touched after a sunburn is painful, or even a, a sort of warm shower feels like a sort of torrent of lava, and that's called sensitization. And that process can, in in some people and many people convert this protective short-term pain into long-term pain. So even once an injury, say that, that lower back pain I was talking about is healed, it can be essentially wired into the brain. And that is still completely real. It's neurological. You know, we, we think it's, so for example, epilepsy, that's all in the brain, but it's, everyone thinks of it as being completely real. You know, chronic pain is often a disease in and of itself. Even when there's no injury, there is severe pain. There can be severe pain. And then Dealing with that is very different to dealing with short-term injuries. So often, oh, it's short-term pain. So often, short-term pain associated with injuries responds really well to, to what, what we call painkillers. I prefer calling them pain relievers. Um, so things like morphine, if it's, if it's if it's severe. 
uh, and paracetamol and things like that. But actually, once pain has become written on the brain, once the brain has learned pain, there are basically no medications that can really, really treat that. And the the types of of treatments and therapies that people need once they're once once they have chronic pain are, are very different. What sort of treatments can you give? I, I like to think of it as any treatment that works is one that makes the brain feel safe in its body. And you can think of chronic pain or persistent pain as a sort of an equation in, in a sense. So anything that increases, any cues that uh, increase the sense of threat increases and worsens pain. Anything that increases the sense of safety uh, reduces long-term pain. And I believe that the, 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 the best thing, to, the, the first thing that people uh, need to do or the, the, in terms of clinics that need to be available to patients is pain education. Once people understand that pain is a protector and not just a detector of tissue injury, once they know that hurt doesn't equal harm and they, they are safe to move and that even when they're, when they're moving and they're, and they're in pain, that they're not damaging themselves, that is huge. That is completely liberating. And I think that's the key to living with, reducing and even eliminating um, chronic pain. And so that's, that's, that's the main one. And then, and then from that, there are things like um, uh, movement and physical therapy and, and things that can reduce inflammation as well, anything that reduces stress. And also I think there are huge social elements to, to chronic pain as well that need to be dealt with on an individual, but also a social, social level. But when it comes down to it, it's, it's therapies that make the brain feels safe in its body. Right, I see. You mentioned pain relievers there. How how do pain relievers work? How do they stop? When I've got, um, say I've got a headache or I've, I've hurt myself, how do, does a pain reliever stop that from hurting? And how does it know where in the body to go? That's that's a great question. Um, and it's there are different types of pain relievers. There are uh, anti-inflammatories. I think of something like I'm uh, ibuprofen or something like that, which essentially when you when you have a when you injure yourself, you have um, an immune response, an inflammatory response uh, that worsens pain, but also danger receptors. They can uh, increase and create inflammation as well. So uh, inflammation and um, pain are both protective mechanisms and they both work to, 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 to look after our body. Anti-inflammatories uh, work on reducing the inflammation at the, often at the site of the injury. Then there are some that, so the opioids, the opioid class, which includes, and they come from the, the opium poppy, which uh, humans have been using and abusing for, for, for millennia, uh, from which we get heroin, but also morphine and essentially all other opioids like um, oxycodone and fentanyl. Um, they work on uh, the the danger detector or the, da- the danger receptors and the, and the danger, um, the nerves that convey the danger signals, and they can dampen it down. But a really interesting thing with with opioids is that they are absolutely magical in short term pain. You know, I've been in uh, in A and E and on surgical wards and and see them being incredibly effective. But the evidence shows that they're really good for short term pain, but they're actually not very good at all for chronic pain, long term pain. And actually, in some cases, they can cause something called uh, opioids uh, induced hyperalgesia. So they can actually worsen pain. And this is a really interesting area that's only been sort of uh, really explored in, in the last few years. And it seems that the, the opioids, as well as acting on receptors that reduce these danger signals, they also activate immune receptors 
um, on the cells around our nerves. And so that our body can actually see this molecule as, as something that's, that's foreign and can become inflamed. And that inflammation can actually make it easier for those danger signals to reach the brain and for people to feel pain. So actually, in the long run, opioids don't really work for, for long-term pain. Uh, and then there are other types of, of, uh, of painkillers, um, things like uh, gabapentin and pregabalin. And they also affect the sort of the, the dampening down those, those danger signals. And they're, they're usually used for something called neuropathic pain, which is when there's usually damage to a nerve and there are sort of lots and lots of danger signals being sent up to the brain. Um, so there are, yeah, there are lots of different types of, 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 of pain relievers. But actually, in terms of long-term pain, they're, they're not very effective at all. When I, when I have a headache or a migraine, I always take ibuprofen because I once noticed that paracetamol didn't work as well. Um, and then eventually I decided that it didn't do, paracetamol didn't do anything at all when I had a migraine. Do you think that I'm maybe causing a sort of the opposite of a placebo effect in there when I expect paracetamol not to work and so it doesn't work? Um, definitely. I think, I think the word expect uh, is brilliant. I think, I think the placebo effect should be called the expectation effect. And with that is something called the nocebo effect, the opposite of the placebo effect, where you believe that this something's not gonna not gonna work or something's going to damage you, and then it does. I think one of the one of the most fascinating studies that gives you an insight into the placebo effect was one done in 2011 by um, Irene Tracy's team in Oxford, where they had people hooked up to a, a drip and they had experimental heat exposed on their on their hands, so causing causing pain. Uh, and they started a an infusion of fentanyl, which is a powerful opioid. And initially, they started the infusion without telling them. And then they reported their pain to improve a bit, which isn't surprising because opioids um, reduce pain. But then uh, the experimenter said, OK, we're about to start the infusion now, even though the infusion had already started and the pain relief doubled. Then what was really interesting is that the experimenter said, OK, we're going to stop the infusion now. But they didn't actually stop the infusion. But when they said we'll stop the infusion, the pain relief completely disappeared and they were back in pain, right? So as though they were having no uh, no fentanyl at all. And that's absolutely fascinating because it's essentially a, a huge amount of pain is essentially what our, what our brain is trying to predict what's going on and our expectations play a huge part in that. And I think that's, it's not just a sort of an interesting quirk. I think that that plays a huge part in the sort of, say, the doctor-patient interaction. I think confident doctors who, who instill confidence and have a good rapport with their patients that is that is medicine in and of itself because um recent research has shown that the placebo effect is blocked doesn't work if you block um if you give someone an opioid blocker so our brain creates its own opioids endorphins probably the most famous and that's actually how the, the placebo effect works so the brain opens its its own drug cabinet so you know it the placebo effect is 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 powerful and and it does work and it, and it is useful and and when you were talking about taking taking these pills I've you know heard, heard of someone who um, takes um, a pain a painkiller every morning and he actually sort of he actually talks to his painkillers he says are oh, you guys going to do great today that kind of positivity that he that he, he that he has with them that kind of ritual that he's created all of that's doing is sort of improving the creating it sounds it sounds crazy but sort of it's sort of it's creating the cues that okay this is gonna this is going to work. And then this opens up a, a fascinating, we can go down a fascinating rabbit hole of recent studies that have shown that placebos work even though, when, uh, even, even when you know that you're taking a placebo. 
called the open label placebo because we, we thought you know, it makes sense that we, we assumed that deception was key for the placebo effect but actually it's not that's not true at all i think there's i've lived with really bad um irritable bowel syndrome for for as long as i can remember until i mean this is an, another story um, until i was essentially cured of it um via hypnosis but before that years before that happened i was sort of lying sort of hunched over on on, on the couch I couldn't get out. Uh, I couldn't, couldn't stand up. The IBS was, was that bad. And I was staying over with some family members. And one of my family members, who I won't uh, mention or give away their identity, they love homeopathy, which, you know, homeopathy, uh, it, it only works via the placebo effect. There's no, there's no mechanism that, that, that has been proven at all to show that it, it works in any other way. Um, so she said, okay, do you want to just, just try one of these, these tablets? And I was like, okay, fine. Um, and I, so I looked at the, 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 um, the container with some kind of faux Latin name on it. And you knew it was, I was just taking a sugar pill, but I took it anyway. And actually my IBS completely went away that day, which completely, which completely terrified me. But then I started to look into, into, into some work that's been, been going on. And actually there've been a number of studies that show that giving people placebos, even when they, they're told that it's a placebo, it's, it's inert, it doesn't do anything, can actually help a lot of, a lot of different pain conditions. Yeah. So it's, it's a really fascinating and complex, complex area. So should I be talking up my painkillers instead by going, this is definitely going to work? <laughs> I completely agree. What is the link between pain and emotions? So that's, um, that's really interesting. I think when I was writing the book, people would say, are you going to write about emotional pain as well as physical pain? But actually, it's pain is not physical and it's not emotional. It's, it's both of those things. It's, they're hugely, hugely intertwined. There have been some fascinating cases where some people who have had damage to certain areas of the emotional brain, who've experienced pain before, but when those areas are knocked out because of a stroke, they know that they're experiencing, they know that they're experiencing pain but it's not painful. It's, it's not unpleasant. And a lot of these people actually end up have been found sort of driving you know, needles into their eyes and damaging themselves because there's just no aversion to, there's no sort of movement away or disgust or, or, or aversion to, to pain. So you need, we need, pain is always, in a sense, always physical, but it's always emotional as well. And what's really interesting actually is uh, someone I interviewed um, for the book, uh, an Australian man called Evan, who's a remarkable man. He, uh, in 2006, he got into the Australian SAS, which is their, one of their high, most highly regarded special, special forces regiments. And they were about to go to, go to Afghanistan. And most of the, most of the army were just there to sort of build bridges physically and metaphorically, but he would be part of a team going behind enemy lines. And as part of that, they were given resistance to interrogation training which is, it's, it's not meant to be torture, but it's meant to be very stressful. And he essentially, to, to cut a very long story short, he was um, abused and tortured by some of his own men who, for various reasons, were, they, were, they were pretty incompetent and they took a disliking to him. So for about 90 hours, he was, he was tortured. He was put in stress positions, uh, naked in a cold, um, dank room. He had blaring music on and he had um, blacked out ski goggles. He was also beaten up so much that he was bleeding from places that he didn't he just didn't know where the blood was coming from but after that after that episode evan left the army and for a seven year period even though he sustained didn't sustain any serious physical injuries during the torture he had terrible whole body pain for for, for six seven years he was he took a lot of painkillers none of them worked at all he couldn't put on boot, couldn't put boots on he couldn't get into a 
a swimming pool that wasn't sort of bath temperature. He was just very hypersensitive to pain, even though there was no physical damage. And what's really interesting is that his pain only went away. Well, there were two things that reduced his pain. The first is that after six or seven years, well, he had taken the Australian government to court and he won and they paid all of his extensive legal costs and they gave him, reinstated his rank. And it was only after that that the pain actually lifted, as well as he did go undergo some, some psychological therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder called, called EMDR. And it was those things that reduced his pain. So I think, uh, you know, for people who are living with chronic pain, I'd never say do CBT or something like that, your pain will go away. But if we ignore the emotional element of pain at our peril and for for anyone to be to, to be able to live with chronic pain, being able to express emotions and deal with emotions um, is 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 completely, completely necessary. And that's why I think various psychological therapies are really important, as is dealing with social social issues, I think. Um, people who are oppressed in society uh, are more likely to have long-term pain. And all of those things that the torturers used on Evan, so things like fear, isolation, rejection, confusion, those are the, those things ramp pain up massively and can cause and worsen chronic pain. Those are the same things that oppression in society can cause to people. So that's why actually pain is really interesting because it it doesn't just look at the biological, it looks at the psychological and the social. And these things are really important. Evan's story is very tragic and very e- extreme, but most of us would would experience a, a similar sort of ramping up of pain because of anxiety or other emotions. When I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, when you see those videos online of a baby who's about to get their first jabs and the doctor's doing something silly and making them laugh so they don't notice, is that actually a way of reducing their pain it's not just to to sort of take their mind off it oh that's that's a really really interesting point actually because i think needle phobia is something that you know i've got i've had needle phobia for a while and i think i i just think i overthink things and sometimes maybe i just want i i, I suspect well you know the person giving me the injection is one of my more sort of incompetent friends from medical school or something like that but um it's it's, it's hugely important because if people have develop needle phobia at a young age, they're less likely to have vaccinations. They're more likely to for their, for their children not to have vaccines, which, as, as we know at the moment with um, the COVID-19 pandemic, it's hugely important. But also these people are less likely to give blood um, and, and very, various other things like that. So actually, I think reducing anxiety in childhood as if vaccinations and injections is really, really crucial. And there are some really easy ways to do that. So if we look at what pain is, pain is a protector. Anything that increases the sense of threat worsens pain. Anything that increases the sense of safety reduces pain. So, for example, if you know if, if, if a child's having an injection, or if, if your child's having an injection, or you're the you're the caregiver, have them sit up, give them a sense of that you know they're able to they're able to move. If they're sort of lying down and pinned down, that's really bad. You don't want to do that. Um, if they can be hugged, depending on their age, if they can be breastfeeding, what. Well, or given the sugary sweet, or distracted, I think that's really key. And I think as you know, it's I think that that's that's just incredibly important. I think one one important thing as well is to is to not say things like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, you know, don't worry about it. Oh, it's kind of you know, you've got it's it's all about sort of being confident. And say, oh, you've done really well. That's also partly because you know our subconscious doesn't really 
register the word don't you don't worry so don't worry like, oh don't worry about something what's wrong so actually um it's it's, it's and if, if, if i'm a you know um on the ward as a doctor and i'm assessing someone with the sort of an injured left arm what i could do at the end of it is look at their right arm and say oh you know how's your right arm doing fine good can you move it for me great even that kind of that kind of stuff is actually just gives them po- positive cues and it's not obviously it's, it's not you know, the last thing you want to do is to, to say oh this isn't going to hurt we're not hurting but confidence i think is, is a hugely important cure and actually that brings me to a really yeah really interesting um uh, fascinating study about the confidence of caregivers so there was a study where they had two um sort of a wisdom tooth painkiller study where there were two groups of people who've just had their wisdom tooth removed and both of those groups are split into having one of two treatments so one half of so one group half of them are given uh, fentanyl given a really powerful opioid which is great and half are given a placebo in the other group half are given a placebo but half are given naloxone which is a opioid blocker so that definitely shouldn't help with any kind of pain the opposite of anything so the, the dentists knew which patient they had so they, they knew that the patient in front of them had a 50 either had a 50 percent chance of having this uh, really good opioid or a placebo or that patient was the person who's not going to get any opioid, but they were going to have a placebo or this placebo, uh, this opioid blocker. And the, the dentists weren't able to tell the patients what, what, which group they were in. What was absolutely fascinating is for those in the placebo group of the 50% placebo or 50% opioid, their pain was reduced quite significantly. But in the other group where the dentists knew that they were only going to get a placebo or the opioid blocker, their pain actually got worse. So those kind of subtle clues sort of, the, the, of, a, of a confident um, clinician or a, not completely nonverbal cues uh, of a confident clinician or a non-confident clinician either created pain or reduced it. And so I think, I think that's, um, that's hugely important. And I think you're, you're completely right. I think anxiety and fear are the greatest fuels for the fire of pain. So I think there are some really, really, really practical things you can do with them. Um, things like things like needle phobia, definitely. So, what are the um, three things that you think we all should um, take away? The three things we all should know about pain. Uh, yeah, really interesting. I think um, firstly is to understand that pain is is a protector. Pain is trying to protect us, even if it's ruining our life with persistent chronic pain. Understanding that pain is uh, is trying to protect us is is crucial. The second thing. I think is understanding that pain is real. So everyone's pain is real and we should take it really seriously and understand that it's, even if pain is completely made by the brain, it's it's not all in your head. And that's really key. I think we need to understand that people are in pain. Third thing, I think, and I'm thinking about this more and more, I think actually, is that pain should drive us to love. Um, And it sounds a bit, you know, it sounds a little bit airy-fairy, but it's, Actually, various strands of science are showing that if we love ourselves, if we are in pain, or we love others and support others who are in in chronic pain, giving them our time, uh, our love, and our confidence on the individual level, but also at, on a societal level, I think that is hugely revolutionary and something that we we need to do as individuals and as a society, and it can really relieve pain. So yeah, I think so. The three things are to understand that pain is a protector, not, not an accurate detector of injury, that all pain is real, 
campaign should drive us to love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Dr. Monty Lyman. If you want to know more, check out his book, The Painful Truth. Or to hear him tell me about using hypnosis and virtual reality as pain relief and the people who don't feel pain at all, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The summer issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is on sale this week. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com.